This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. This is episode 358. You know, the, the joke always is that cash is king. And if I were to look at any company in the biotech sector who's in the research phases and the health of the company, I would really focus on uh, the cash balance and their burn and how many years worth of cash do they have. And those are important things. And it's also one area where Jounce is unique. Because we were able to enter into this um, large collaboration with Celgene, we're in, we have a strong balance sheet for a company at our stage. For a company who's in phase two to have more than two years worth of cash puts us in a unique position. So when we went public last year, we were probably one of the few companies who was out trying to go public who didn't need a fundraising. So it was more opportunistic and an opportunity to become a public company. <laughs> From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Kim Drapkin, CFO of Jounce Therapeutics. One year after taking Jounce public, Kim Drapkin is applying a career's worth of finance leadership experience to helping Jounce realize its plus-size mission of transforming the treatment of cancer. We begin after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. clinical stage immuno-oncology company whose mission is to transform the treatment of cancer. Kim, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Kim, as you might know, we would like to always kick off with our guests by asking them to look back for us and share a little of their uh, career path with us and those experiences that help them prepare uh, for the CFO role they today have. What what comes to mind for you? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I look at my career in sort of two avenues. One is the finance side, and one is the industry side. So I've been fortunate to be in the biotechnology space, um, I think, for more than 20 years at this point. And I consider that as much a part of my career path as I do my route to get to the CFO 
So I started out um, traditionally at Pricewaterhouse as, you know, a CPA and did my training there, um, honing my skills in terms of the technical side. And once I left public accounting, I took my first role in a biotechnology company. And that company uh, was a startup at the time, Millennium Pharmaceuticals. And I really was fortunate in that I spent 10 years at Millennium, and it was a period of incredible growth, and it was a time in which many transactions were happening. And so it was a tremendous training ground for me. I was able to be a part of you know, not only taking the company public, but doing multiple follow-on offerings, um, debt offerings, several acquisitions, um, you know, as a supporting player at, at that point in my career, but being exposed to those types of transactions and working with people um, across those really gave me a tremendous training ground. And after my time at Millennium is when I left to take my first CFO role. So since then, I've been the CFO of both private and public companies. Um, as you mentioned, I'm currently the CFO of a public company, Jounce Therapeutics, which I've been the CFO for um, going on three years. Um, but before that, I spent six years um, working with Third Rock Ventures uh, across a number of their portfolio companies, helping get companies started and taking on an interim CFO role. And Jounce was one of my clients then, and it really gave me an opportunity to help build companies. So I've had a, a variety of experiences that I think have really helped me. But the two things that resonate most with me is, you know, I am a traditional accountant by training. Um, I had a tremendous opportunity to work on multiple transactions over my early years in my career, and I've been fortunate to be in a great um, industry like biotech in the Boston, Cambridge area. Um, there's such a big network here, and it, it's, it's been a great field to be part of. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what what uh, drew you to Jones and what was the, the opportunity you saw? Sure. So as with anyone, you know, all of us have been touched by cancer at different times in our lives, most likely. And, you know, Jones is working on cancer immunotherapy and it's using your immune system uh, to help stop the cancer. And it's something that really resonated with me um, personally, as well as, at the time, it was a field that was just really opening up and really changing the paradigm of cancer treatment. So it was something that was very exciting to me. Um, at a younger age, I had lost my mom to cancer, and it's something I always wanted, you know, to work at an oncology-focused company. I had always been in biotech. Um, Millennium did some cancers, um, but, you know, I hadn't been at a company that solely focused on oncology, and it was something that you know, drew me. But in addition to the focus of the company, it really was the team and the science itself. Um, one of the things in biotechnology that I always look for when I look at a company is who is the management team and, and what is their experience and have they gotten drugs approved? Um, and, you know, do, do my due diligence on the science and talking to people I know. And Giles at the time, and still does, has such a great reputation in terms of where our CEO and CSO had been involved in um, immunotherapy in their private com uh, previous companies, had gotten drugs approved, and it really was a good fit for me, um, both in terms of how the team interacted. And I had the opportunity to be a consultant with Jones for a number of years before I decided to join on, so I sort of knew what I was getting into, if you will. So when you, when you arrived, uh, you were very familiar with the company, with the team, 
But was there something that you thought you you made a priority as you you arrived there in terms of how things were organized or how the finance function was viewed? Sure. So my at that point in my career, you know, when I was sort of looking at what did I want to do, I did desire to go back into the public company realm. I really do enjoy the interaction with investors. I also enjoy the building of a company. And uh, right now, um, in a week or two, Jouts is, is at its five-year anniversary. And even though I've only been an employee for, you know, going on three years, I've actually been involved with Jouts since its inception. So I had a personal connection to the company, to the establishment of it. Um, but knowing that it was a team that I felt very comfortable with, um, I was going to have the opportunity to take the company from a private company to a public, build the finance function as well as, you know, operations, IT, and, and other things that roll up under me. And it just all around was, was a really good fit for me from the people I'd be working with, the science, um, as well as just the time in the life cycle of the company. So just to get a better fix on the IPO, was that uh, one year ago, two years ago? When when was that? One year, yep. So we're just coming on our one-year anniversary right now. We're actually ringing the NASDAQ bell um, the end of January to celebrate our one year as a public company. Had you participated in roadshows before, oh, yes. and was that part mm-hmm. of this whole? Um, but as a CFO, I, I would imagine you were uh, you were much more in the spotlight this time. Yes, although in my prior company, um, I, after I left Millennium, I was at Predix Pharmaceuticals, and I was hired to take them public as the CFO. We ended up going all the way through the roadshow. We didn't complete the offering. We ended up doing a reverse merger and became a public company, and then I was the public company CFO for a number of years. So I had done a roadshow before. Um, it didn't end as successfully as Jones's did, um, and it, in addition, I've when I was working with Third Rock across a number of their portfolio companies, I worked on many F1s, but would hand it over to the CEO and CFO that we hired to do the roadshow and all of that. So I hadn't done one in a few years when I did Jones last year. Now, you, you mentioned you were a consultant, and I think that's a, a really interesting career chapter uh, for so many because it opens your eyes to all sorts of opportunities and paths that can be taken. But wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, filling us a little bit in as to the circumstances that led you there and the types of opportunities it exposed you to. I mentioned that I had worked previously at um, Predix Pharmaceuticals, which reverse merged into Epix. We were a public company. We ultimately um, didn't go forward. We had an, we did an assignment for the benefit of creditors. We had a, a program fail in the clinic. So um, at that point, when I left that job, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do. I had just come off of you know four years of being a public company CFO, but it was also very difficult having to do several rounds of layoffs and actually closing the company. So I sort of wanted to step back and see what I wanted to do. And so I do have a vast network from, you know, my years at Millennium. And so the for, uh, the former CEO and founding, you know, CEO of Millennium, Mark Levin, and a few others, Bob Tepper and Kevin Starr, all executives from Millennium, had started a venture capital firm, Third Rock Ventures, in Boston. And at this time, very few venture companies were investing heavily in early-stage biotech companies. So Third Rock was taking a whole new approach. And instead of 
having people come to them and say, hey, I need a, a Series A, I want $10 million. Third Rock actually um, founded the companies themselves by going out, getting great ideas, getting great teams, and putting money behind it. And so I had reached out to um, my network at Third Rock and asked if I could help in any way. And so what initially I thought would just be a stopping point while I figured out my next move ended up being something I did for six years and probably one of the um, my favorite parts of my career, if you will. So I created um, a consulting firm where, you know, I was the founder of KCD Financial. My, my main role was to go in to a number of companies as the interim CFO, help get things started. I had some consultants who worked with me. I would do anywhere from three to five companies at a given time and go in and do anything from controller-level work to CFO work. And it, it gave me the exposure to a number of companies. And one of my early clients was Jounce Therapeutics. And I worked on, you know, within Third Rock trying to determine how much money the company would need to get to a value point and calculating the Series A. I was part of, you know, watching the company grow and building the team. So when I was looking uh, to stop doing the consulting and get back into a company, uh, Jounce was a, a natural move for me because it was something I was very familiar with and a company that I really um, enjoyed being part of from the, from its inception. A number of the uh, companies uh, we're talking about were started by some uh, resourceful entrepreneurs. Do you have a entrepreneurial itch? I would say yes. So I went to Babson College, and one of the things, um, even back when I went there, that was very important was entrepreneurship and starting companies and building companies. And even as a college student, we had you know projects we worked on, and we looked at Harvard cases, and we really spent a lot of time talking about what makes a company work. So when I I was an accounting major, and when I was deciding. What I wanted to do, you know, of course, I'm dating myself by saying there were, I think, eight accounting firms, and there were the big eight, and then down to the big six, I think, by the time I graduated, I was really focused on two of the large accounting firms that had what was called a small growth or emerging company division that you could get hired right into there so that your clients would really be new companies that were getting started. So I joined Pricewaterhouse, and at the time, it was called, I think, MMG, Middle Market and Growing, and it really was establishing and growing companies. And so one of the things that I had no understanding of at that time was the biotechnology industry, and by joining this MMG group at Pricewaterhouse, I was putting myself in a position uh, to be to, for, so that most of my clients were biotech or high-tech. And so one of my first clients was Biogen, which at the time was, you know, a small company compared to where it is today, but large for our group. So I spent a lot of time working on a number of very small biotech companies, had a great opportunity to really learn because this was back when auditors did a lot of the work. So even from the early days, I always wanted to be in the small companies. I felt like I would learn the most there, and I definitely did. And when I decided to leave Pricewaterhouse, I went to a startup. Um, Millennium had, I think, less than 40 employees when I started. I did stay there for 10 years and, and watched it grow to over 2,000 employees. Um, so that was my one stop, if you will, where I was really at a larger company. But when I thought back on the times of my career when I learned the most, it was in that growing phase. And I really liked just 
I liked building the companies. I think today, now, looking back on my career, I would not have been satisfied to be a CPA in an insurance company or a manufacturing company. I need more than that, and biotech has offered has offered me that. Not only has it offered, you know, you feel like you're contributing to society and working on a greater good, but I've been able to be at a number of companies and, and be part of their life cycle and building the company. And I guess it's sort of that entrepreneurial itch that I've always had, even when I was young, when I didn't fully understand it, something in me said, I want to be in these small market groups in public accounting, not the big mutual funds or things like that. Well, thank you uh, for allowing me to throw you a few extra questions, but uh, I do want to find out about Johnson's offerings uh, today and what what is the opportunity uh, it has in the marketplace? Sure. So Johnson's in cancer immunotherapy, as we talked about, and cancer immunotherapy has really had a rebirth over the last, we'll call it uh, maybe seven years at this point. Um, years and years ago, there were scientists who were focused on using the immune system to fight cancer, and it, you know, it was a small group of people, and they had some issues in some of the early trials, and people really stopped, you know, looking at this field. Um, but there were a few scientists, one of whom, um, Johnson's scientific founder, Jim Allison, who who stayed true to the course and really believed that immunotherapy was going to make a difference in patients' lives who have cancer. And so, uh, Third Rock, as I'd mentioned, was really ahead of its ahead of its peers, if you will, in starting companies. And they would always look out and say, you know, what are the next trends um, coming out in science, and where should we be? And so, when Jounce was talked about in the early days, and you know, the idea to start this company in cancer immunotherapy, people weren't in cancer immunotherapy then, and it was kind of you know, a risky thing to do. Now, if you look across biotech, any oncology company will now say they have, you know, they do cancer immunotherapy also. Um, the approval of some of the checkpoint inhibitors um, from Merck and BMS and others have really changed and shifted the paradigm of cancer treatment. And, you know, it we hadn't seen success like this where, you know, there are a certain subset of patients who are having tremendous responses to these drugs. Um, and what where jounce, where we fit into this is that even though there have been exciting um, developments in cancer immunotherapy, there's still a large unmet medical need. So, for example, you know, the drugs that are doing so well, the Keytrudas and the Opdivos, in certain indications, they work in only a small fraction of the patients. And so it's believed that there are, you know, many other things in the immune system that um, could come into play, and that's where what we do at Jounce and where we sort of differentiate ourselves. One of the things when we built Jounce is we entered into um, collaboration agreements um, with our advisors, with research institutions and academic institutions, and got access to thousands of human tumors. And what we do is we interrogate the tumors and look at the immune cell makeup so that we can ideally match the right therapy to the right patients. So we are working on really identifying not necessarily what type of cancer you have, but what are the characteristics of your specific tumor and what would be most beneficial for you. And so we call that matching the right therapy to the right patient. And so another thing that we do is, is we believe that part of the reason 
some of these um, immunotherapies aren't working in certain patients is they're either lacking characteristics or they have other characteristics. So by understanding who you're testing your medication in and who would be the most beneficial, you're more likely to have a, um, you know, a positive clinical trial result. So we do what's called a biomarker-driven approach where um, we look at the tumors of the patients coming into our study and identify whether or not they have the characteristics that we think um, would help them benefit from our drug. So this differentiation um, also attracted our partner Celgene. So we have a very large um, collaboration with Celgene, and um, working with them has helped us, um, you know, sort of in the early days and before we went public, gave us credibility and validation of our platform. But hopefully as we move forward, if we're fortunate enough to have positive clinical trial results, they're obviously um, – you know, they have great expertise in um, in uh, commercialization of oncology programs and things like that. So they're a great um, partner for us. So can you tell us about some of the key metrics you rely on to reveal how Jounce is performing? Sure. So in biotech, you know, the, the joke always is that cash is king. Um, we have revenue, but the type of revenue that we have is really an accounting mechanism. So the Celgene collaboration that I mentioned, we received $225 million up front, and we take that to revenue over time. So our revenue today, and probably not for a long time, um, is not you know sales-driven or anything like that. Um, so when we think about, and if I were to look at any company in the biotech sector who's in the research phases and the health of the company, I would really focus on uh, the cash balance and their burn and how many years' worth of cash do they have. And those are important things, and it's also one area where Jounce is unique. Because we were able to enter into this um, large collaboration with Celgene, we're in, we have a strong balance sheet for a company at our stage. For a company who's in phase two to have more than two years' worth of cash puts us in a unique position. So when we went public last year, we were probably one of the few companies who was out trying to go public who didn't need a fundraising. So it was more opportunistic and an opportunity to become a public company. And we did it so that we would have access the next time we were looking for capital. You know, taking drugs to market obviously is very expensive. And so we've been fortunate that, you know, having this balance sheet has allowed us to do things opportunistically as opposed to most biotechs and most of my career as well. You're raising money when you have to um, because you're always needing money because you're not generating any. You're just spending on research. So the things that, as a CFO, that are most important to me is that when we are spending money, it's actually creating value. So when you you know, all of your money comes from investors, you need to make sure you're using it as a way that creates value for the company. And it may not be immediate. So when we're coming up with a budget or a long-range plan, we also will draw out a chart of each of our programs and identify where the value creation points are that we can raise capital off of these points. But it also helps in the early days when you're a private company to have investors see what their money is going towards. So if, you know, you're raising $40 million and you're saying this will get me to IND, then they understand, you know, so that this is what they're getting for their investment. And they'll know you have to go back to the market um, at that point. So for us, it's very important to make sure we're always driving towards value. 
so we will make decisions and say, you know, we only have a million dollars to put towards this. What is a better creation of value? Is it this study or this study? And we have to make those decisions um, because there isn't, you know, you can't just go increase your sales. You don't have sales and you have a fixed amount of capital. So it's really prioritizing how you spend your money. Kim, we like to ask for a, a finance strategic moment. We used to call it an aha moment. And this is a, a moment in time during your career when given your lines of sight into the organization as a finance executive, you either saw an opportunity or maybe a risk, and uh, you responded in some way. Is there anything come to mind? Sure, sure. When I think about, I think there's a few moments, and they were probably in my early career at, at Millennium, where, you know, I saw that Millennium was on an upward trajectory, and we continued to purchase other companies to do transactions, and I had sort of a choice at that point to stay more on the operational side of the accounting or to get involved in these transactions, and I thought the transactions were exciting, but I also had the aha moment that said, you know, I can stay plugging away. I liked the technical accounting. I was good at it, but it, I knew I needed to be more strategic if I saw myself wanting to be a CFO someday. So I sort of made a natural shift where I was the, um, I forget at the time, the senior manager of technical accounting where I did all the SEC reporting. And then I switched to working primarily with the business development folks you know, still looking at accounting, but doing it in connection with the deal. So I had the opportunity to sit down with the business development folks and help come up with a structure of the deal. I was able to talk to the other parties where, you know, if we were doing a deal with, you know, Johnson & Johnson as a deal we did once at Millennium, and we would speak to their finance folks and sort of understand what they were trying to accomplish from their budget and from their, you know, strategic focus and help our business development folks craft a deal. So I think it was there that it was a turning point for me that I realized that I needed to become more strategic. And I also at that same time realized I needed to understand the science if I wanted to stay in biotechnology. And so I made sure to spend time at each company I was at learning the science. And because you can't just be an, an accountant or a CFO, when you're out, you know, talking to Wall Street and investors, you have to be able to tell the company's story. And, you know, there's a, a limit where you can say, you know, I'll get back to you on that. The science question is too technical. But there's a, a, you know, a line where there are things I am expected to know, and I do need to be able to explain the story. And that's something that was sort of an aha moment that I tell some of the younger folks that work with me is don't forget that. You know, it's not just how well you're doing your debits and credits. You need to get out there and work with the scientists. You need to understand the story. You need to understand this company. And that's what's going to help you go to the next level. Well, that's great advice. And it's a, it's a great segue for us to enter uh, our mentoring round, which we will do right after these words from our trusted sponsor. You want smart 
clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, so we will enter the mentoring round, and uh, way back when you, you uh, indicated that... Uh, Biotechnology was an area that you found quite interesting, but uh, we're wondering about today. What is it today that's exciting you about finance and business? I think it's still the biotechnology industry and it's cancer immunotherapy. I think it's having the opportunity to be in finance and to be a CFO, but feel like you're actually contributing to the greater good of society, if you will. So I would say that's what keeps me going. I think you know, I've been working now for I don't know how many years, but a lot of years. And I think if I was just doing accounting somewhere that, you know, <clears throat> was in end, means to an end or something, it just really wouldn't excite me. And I think it's that entrepreneurial drive I have. I really like building companies. And I think when I talk to folks about their career and what they'd like to do, I really do think it's important to find something that you're passionate about. And it may not be that you're passionate about debits and credits, but you're good at it, but you really like high tech or you really like biotech. I think getting into an industry that you can be excited about and you can feel good about working in really makes a difference. And that's something that I've been fortunate in my entire career to be in the biotechnology space. And, and in the Boston and Cambridge area, it's a tremendous network. And I was looking at my LinkedIn, for example, the other day, and I was like, oh, my goodness, I have 800-something connections. But I never accept a connection of somebody I don't know. But I've worked across so many companies, whether it was when I was consulting or, you know, people I worked with at Millennium or other places who went to other companies. And it's just a fantastic group of people and network. And I think that's as important is your career and how you do is being in an area that you feel good about and that you enjoy working in. Okay. Now, we always like this uh, particular question as well, which is to, that first time you stepped into the CFO office, <laughs> was there a piece of advice you wish someone had given you? Something that, that looking back now, if only I had known then what I know now, what would that be? Um, I don't know if there's advice that I wish I knew, but I was given a piece of advice that really helped me, and it was something that has always resonated with me. So I was fortunate um, in my career at Millennium. At different times, I worked for different CFOs, but towards the end of my tenure there, I worked for um, Marsha Finucci, who's, you know, let's see, a female CFO. And, you know, we were talking about being a CFO and being a woman, and one of the things she said to me is you often look at any situation that's presented to you and you think you don't have a choice. So if your child has a science fair and you have a big meeting at work, she said that, you know, in her younger years, she always made the mistake of saying, oh, I, I can't go to the science fair. I don't have a choice. I have to do this work thing. And, you know, she was older than I was and, and had experienced these things. And she said to me, she's like, do me a favor. And every time you're faced with a choice like that, stop, look in the mirror and say to yourself, 
that I'm good at what I do and I do have a choice. And every time I've been faced with a difficult decision, particularly with family life balance or things like that, I've always been reminded of that. And it's a piece of advice I've sort of hijacked from her that I've given to other people. And it really has helped me in a number of ways um, during my career. And it's something that um, I thought was a great piece of advice. Now, do you have a personal habit that you believe has contributed to your professional success? I wouldn't say a personal habit, but I am a big believer that EQ is more or as important as IQ, that I've had many very smart finance people I've worked with who, you know, their head is down and they're just focused on their numbers. They give you the best numbers and you know they're right, but they ha- they're not looking out around them and seeing how they can contribute to the greater company. And I think um, it's a skill I learned by watching others, and I had the opportunity to have a tremendous group of mentors over the years for the different CFOs that I've worked with that I saw how important that EQ was. And so I think that's something that I've tried very hard to make sure I focus on, and I tell that to people who work for me as well, that, you know, a good accountant or a good finance person, there's many, 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 but you know, there's not as many who can actually sit down, have a conversation with an investor, talk about, you know, things from a strategic level and also understand the numbers. So it's really knowing that you need that broader skill set and you can't, you know, you have to be able to get along with people and you have to be liked and you have to be able to work well with others. And those are the things that I think have helped me. I, I somehow suspect you've always been a gifted uh, communicator, but I'm wondering as you moved into a publicly held company, if you may have sought to augment your communication skills, uh, knowing that you would be doing more public speaking. Sure. Mm-hmm. So in I was actually in college. Um, one of the things I always like to do, I was in the a group that we did public speaking competitively and I really enjoyed the extemporaneous speaking where you were given a topic and you had you know 10 minutes to prepare and then you had to give a speech and it's probably stuck with me to this day I'm not a preparer I never practice because I I feel like I'm much better if I just go for it Um, and it probably comes from doing that extemporaneous speaking but communications is extremely important and when I had my first public company role I was nervous. It was, you know, how am I going to talk about the science? How am I going to go out there and sell the company? And so I I did have media training. I worked with um, great investor relations and public relations folks who we would do practice. And it's painful. You get recorded and you watch yourself and how you answer. Um, So all of that has definitely helped over the years. And I think being a good listener is very important as well. You need to listen to what the question is, respond. Um, and so it's something I've always tried to work on, but I've been fortunate to have, you know, some specific training as well because communication is very important, and it's a lot of times not a strong suit for a finance person. So it is something that if you can be good at it, that can be a differentiator, particularly uh, later in your career when you're looking at the more strategic roles. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Sure. So I don't know if there's anything particular for finance leaders that resonates with me, but um, another book that sort of was a, a important moment for me, and I joke with some of the women I know, you either love it or you hate it, but I'm a big fan of Lean In and Sheryl Sandberg's book. She's somebody I, I, I 
I admire. Um, I also really liked your book, Option B, but it was the first time when I read Lean In, I read it maybe, I don't know, five years ago, that I really felt like, oh, she understands exactly. Um, and I think it's because she's in a tech field, which is mostly male-dominated. I've always been, you know, in finance, which is mostly male-dominated. And I really related to a lot of what she said. Um, I'm not a big self-help type of person or anyone who focuses on those books, but there was something about her that just really appealed to me. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned it to other women. Some read it. They don't like it at all. Others love it. So it's, it's something about it struck a chord with me. And I always tell women one of the things that um, resonated that she said to me is a lot of times women check out before they need to. And what she means by that is you look at a situation and you leave before you have to. And I thought back at my career, and I did exactly what she said. When I was at Price Waterhouse, there were no women partners, and I knew I was driven. I wanted to be a partner, and I looked around, and I didn't see any women partners. So at my fourth year, I was like, oh, i got to leave because I want to be a mother. I want to be married, and I don't see how that works here. And so she called it like checking out before you need to instead of staying to get to that point and then leaving. So there's certain things like that that I could identify with my career. Another one I tell women all the time, and I see it, is she always says, take a seat at the table. And I see many women invited to a board meeting, they'll sit on the edge. And I always grab them and say, sit at the table. I don't know if it's a courtesy thing, but there are a few tips in her book that I do think resonate well with women and um, meant a lot to me and I could relate to. So it was, it's a book that you know I enjoyed reading and found it helpful. Excellent. Our final question, what are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Sure. Over the next 12 months, this is a, a very big year for Jounce. We have our first clinical data um, coming out this year at um, what's called ASCO. It's the major um, cancer medical meeting. So our priorities are making sure that we've educated our investor base um, over the next six months before that data comes out and, you know, really positioned ourselves so that when our data comes out, um, people understand it. It's not um, like other industries where, you know, everything's clear, this is that. There are so many different immunotherapy drugs and so many different indications, and so we're going to be spending a lot of time really making sure that our analysts and our investors understand the market, the space, and where we'll be competing. So that's one focus. I think the second, um, we are in a position of strength on our balance sheet, but, you know, you always want to raise money when you don't need it. So opportunistically, we'll look for opportunities, whether it makes sense um, to raise additional funds, but just to make sure we continue to operate from, you know, an area of financial strength. And as I said earlier, with biotech, what we're always trying to make sure is that when we're spending money, that it's actually creating value. So a priority always is to match our spending to value creation and hope that we are doing that um, you know, all along the way. And that's something with our earlier stage research we have to keep an eye on and um, as well as our later stage programs, making sure that we're always bringing value. And that's where the CFO and my team can help in, you know, sort of helping people be aware of, you know, what it takes to get to that point and, and you know, the cost and understanding all of that. So those are really our priorities. Kim Drapkin. Thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. 
Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOThoughtLeader.com.